Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, President of the City Club's Board of Director and a partner at Thompson Hine. I am very honored to introduce today's speaker, Deputy Assistant to the President for the Office of American Innovation, J. Ron Smith. A Cleveland native, Mr. Smith grew up in the Lee Harvard neighborhood of Cleveland and graduated from St. Peter Chanel High School where he played football. He turned down the chance to play college football in Northeast Ohio and instead enrolled in Howard University, charting a course that would eventually lead him to become one of the White House's highest ranking African American officials. In 2017, he was hired to serve as the advisor to President Donald Trump on urban affairs and revitalization, pursuing a slate of issues that included prison reform and aiding historically black colleges and universities. Following this, Mr. Smith advised the President on domestic policy and legislative affairs before assuming his current role as Deputy Assistant to the President for the Office of American Innovation, established in 2017 to address the country's toughest problems, in part by drawing upon lessons of the private sector. While the Office of American Innovation is tackling many projects, much of Mr. Smith's current role focuses on policies that facilitate revitalization on the local level, including stimulating economic growth through opportunity zones, reforming the criminal justice system, and supporting our nation's historically black colleges and universities. We will hear more about that work today. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage Mr. J. Ron Smith. Well, one, uh, thank you so much to the City Club for uh, allowing me to be your guest. Um, I heard from a couple different people. It's not often uh, you have someone uh, such, as my, such as myself uh, join um, in the ranks of a lot of the historical figures that are here on the wall. And so I'm very honored um, to come up here to not only share my story, but also uh, talk about the work um, of this White House and the commitment um, towards change in so many communities uh, around the country. Um, I also uh, want to thank uh, my friend Colin here for uh, helping me get engaged with the City Club um, and appreciate your local um, leadership, um, as well as a number of individuals that I've had the opportunity to um, interact with over the last two years. Um, but I really want to start off um, talking about uh, my village. Um, and say thank you to um, my parents. I have my father, Willie K. Smith. My mother, Joy Smith. My sister, Rhonda Smith. My grandmother, Myrna Solomon. and my stepmother, Connie Smith. 
Also honored to have uh, close friends and colleagues that I've grown up with, um, such as my football coach, uh, Jarvis Gibson, um, who's been a great friend and mentor throughout my life. And, uh, happy you're here to, to join and support me, um, as well as uh, Jonathan Harrell, um, over here who I went to high school with, along with his mother, uh, Mrs. Williams, who used to drive us to school um, <laughs> from the Lee and Harvard area. Um, but also my brother over here, uh, Michael Witt, who we've um, been friends since I was six years old, you know, uh, and uh, my goddaughter um, as well uh, is joining him. So that's, um, that's my village. And honestly, you don't see a person like me make it here without having that village, uh, that, that anchor of encouragement. Um, I've shared this story a, a couple different times with people uh, on my way here, uh, even earlier today. Uh, there's, there's a lot of history to where I came from. You know, I happened to grow up uh, during an era which we called a crack cocaine epidemic. And I, and I talk about this very openly because it's, an, it's extremely important because it's touching so many different people um, that you wouldn't even realize um, who, who come out of that ecosystem. Um, but what predates that um, is a lot of uh, African-American families coming up here during the migration. Uh, and I'm only building off of a legacy uh, from my father um, and my grandmother who uh, came to Cleveland um, and her parents came to Cleveland um, looking for opportunity, uh, looking for opportunity working in uh, steel mills or um, getting a blue collar job or getting an opportunity to get a chance um, at the middle class. Um, but right before I was born, I was born in 1982, um, some big changes happened in the 70s. And throughout Ohio, uh, we start seeing a lot of those jobs of leave and go overseas. Uh, and by the time I came around, a new ecosystem emerged uh, that, that grew out of the 70s uh, with drugs in these communities. Uh, and that ecosystem has almost existed for almost 30, 40 years, uh, where so many people who uh, have rich histories, um, the, the will to win, um, have not been connected into um, the promise of America, um, America being the land of opportunity. And so that's important for you to understand because that's my social background and that's what I wake up for every day fighting. And I know some of you in this room are doing the exact same thing. And so um, I thank you all for your leadership, but opportunity um, starts now. And so it's interesting. You know, uh, I always tell people, uh, they say my name, um, of course it's Jerron. A lot of people call me Jerron and, and I go by it. Uh, you know, I had my, I remember I had my elementary school teacher called me J-Ron, and uh, also the president of my university called me J-Ron, and the vice president started calling me J-Ron. I was like, look, long as you somewhat calling me and know I'm in the room, you know, I can, I can, I can deal with that. Um, but it's, it's, it's also uh, amazing, and you're going to have to forgive me because I also talk about my faith um, very openly, uh, that it's crazy how God works. You know, so the name Jeron um, actually is in a name book, you know, because I always pick up names just to be funny. Like, hey, let me look through this book to see if my name is in here. And, uh, you know, my mother and them, um, I, I asked them, like, uh, why did you want to name me Jerron? You know, I was supposed to be Willie K. Smith Jr. <laughs> my dad was like, oh, no, we wanted to make sure you were an original, you know. Uh, and so they came up with this good 80s name, Jerron Smith. 
um, with an apostrophe in it and a capital R. And so I got to constantly tell people how to spell that name. And, uh, but interested in that name book, um, if you look up Jerron, um, it's an Israeli name um, that means to cry out or, or joy. You know, um, if you look at my middle name, um, which was my grandfather's friend in the war named Kenneth, um, you know, Kenneth means handsome, you know, and then if you look at Smith, it's tradesman, worker. So cry out, handsome tradesman is my name. <laughs> right. And so I went to divinity school uh, right when I left Cleveland 11 years ago. And uh, um, in Luke 4, uh, it talks about um, being in the wilderness, you know, uh, and a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And uh, this wilderness experience that I just described to you earlier is this ecosystem of people who live out, um, who are out of touch with opportunity. You know, um, I remember once me and my father were, was driving through uh, um, parts of the community, and he said, Jerron, what do you see? And I was like, a uh, little blight, you know? He was like, no, you see people trying to survive, you know, trying to make ends meet, uh, looking for help, looking for opportunity. Um, you know, I, I like to uh, be honest about the situation because, you know, the paper, it's funny how, like, papers go. They're very blunt, and uh, when I... And I'm thankful for the article that the Plain Dealer wrote about me. Um, however, it's just like one part of it uh, that, that was, was hard, you know, and that's how they talked about my mother um, and saying that she was on crack, you know, um, like that was her whole existence, you know, and, it, and it's not. You know, the, the inspiration of my mother and my grandmother is that she survived that and came back in my life. and help raise me, you know? My dad survived that and raised me, you know? My sister survived that and is having a, a great small business that she's trying to grow, you know? My grandmother was there, you know, I, and grandma, you tried really hard, but I still can't write. <laughs> my grandmother used to spend time with me after school, like writing my letters. She was like, you go to appendix penmanship, and no, uh, I just did a signature back there. I hope they can make it out, but you know, I, you know, to do your best. You know, the heart's in the right place. Um, but that's that's what I mean. That's my village. But see, here's the thing: there's a lot of people who don't have that village, you know, and then they end up in what we call the system. You know, I had to explain this to some of my friends and family that work in the White House. It's like, Jerron, what is the system? I was like, well, that's everything. You know, that's criminal justice, that's the school system, you know, that's the welfare system. Um, and then the rappers like to call it the trap, you know, yeah. caught in the trap, you know. And uh, these are the, the, the languages that are being used. That's how undergutter are like uh, culture called hip hop, right? People trying to tell their stories. And uh, that's what I represent. And coming to Washington uh, 11 years ago, I was uh, coming back from Cleveland, where, to be honest with you, I almost died here, you know? And I'm not talking uh, physical death, I'm talking a spiritual death, you know, because the weight of trying to come back to your hometown and do something positive, and you're knocking on doors and no one's opening, or you're a voice of one crying out in the wilderness and no one 
understands that you're crying out, right? No, no friend, you know, people just look at me as you're drawing. You're just preaching. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, okay. But then uh, my pastor, Pastor Reverend Sadler, because uh, I, I, I joined my first church when I was about 23, uh, Mount Zion Church, and uh, went to that church, and uh, I found some good foundation for me. Um, but one of the biggest pieces of advice he gave me, um, he was like, Jerron, you know, I know you're a financial advisor and all, but if it's not yielding any fruits, why are you doing that? Why, why stick in that insanity? A lot of people stick in this insanity uh, every day, and it leads to suicidal thoughts. I mean, think about our young millennials who, are, who have suicide rates that are climbing up because they they've lost their sense of purpose or um, older white Americans who lost their purpose, or black Americans that uh, turned into drugs. You know, um, like this is systematic, you know, and we all share uh, responsibility with help turning that tide. And so from the reverend's advice, I said, I'm just gonna jump out on faith. You know, uh, I, had, uh, I made a big mistake in college. <laughs> Right after college, you know, my dad, blue collar worker for city, you know, when he retired when I graduated from uh, college and he was like, Jerron, I'm taking some of my retirement. I'm giving all the kids some money, you know, just to get started, you know, give you some money. Don't go buy a car. <laughs> and what did I do? Went and bought a car. <laughs> Top of the line car, too. You know, like it was the Chrysler 300 just came out. I was just like, I'm, I'm going to ride nice. Um, um, but it, it was a trap for me because I have to tell some of my Republican friends, driving around Cleveland with a Chrysler 300, people used to follow me all the time. You know, police used to follow me all the time. You know, so, you know, I, I found myself uh, getting into trouble or being targeted and not being responsible with that car. I couldn't even really afford it, you know. And so I mentioned that because all I think about is when I got up and left was piling all my stuff into that car. <laughs> and that's all I had. And I moved back to Washington, D.C., and I said, you know, I'm just going to sleep on the couch um, with friends I know and just figure things out and figure out where God would want me to go. You know, I applied to divinity school. Um, and what ended up happening was I found myself back working in the politics, and I got a job working for Adam Putnam, and uh, Adam Putnam ran for governor against Ron DeSantis um, down in Florida. And uh, when they hired me, they was like, uh, Jerron, what do you want to do? And I was like, you know what? I just want to get involved and, uh, and work my way up. You know, I'll work the front desk, do whatever is needed, um, and, and look for the opportunity to learn about policy and uh, do some change. And, and, and that's literally what happened. Uh, once I did that and took my hand off the steering wheel, I've been a servant of God. Um, since. And so when people ask me, Jerron, you know, how does it feel about this? How does it feel about that? I always say humbling, but to God be the glory. Because I'm a living example that anything's possible. Anything's possible for any American, any person. And in order to make that possible, we have to aggressively work as a team to create infrastructure that harnesses the most beautiful thing in our country, and that's human capital. It's the most beautiful thing in the world in America, the people who live in these communities. 
and I could tell you about them. You know, uh, Jonathan and I probably lost about, and Mike, we've lost so many friends over the last 10 years that we grew up with, and uh, I've seen them make a wrong turn. But I remember when we played football together, you know, and I was in the streets laughing and joking. These are some of the brightest people that we lost, you know, lost to the streets. And it doesn't have to be that way because one of the most developed economies in the world and the world's ever seen, there's no reason why those people should slip through the cracks. And if we want to be competitive on the global stage, we have to harness that capital. And that's what brought me into the White House. You know, I didn't think that's how it was going to happen. Heck, I didn't even think I was going to grow up to be a Republican. But <laughs> God has, uh, God has a, a crazy way of doing things. <laughs> but... You know, I, I was recruited in day one um, by the president. I was one of his first hires, and he hired me to be director of urban affairs and revitalization policy because he made a commitment from day one to work for the forgotten community. And so for the first year and a half of working in the Trump administration, well, it was a funny thing about the White House, too. When you get a job there, they give you a laptop and a phone and say, go to work. There's no roadmap. There's none of that. <laughs> You know, at least when I worked on the Hill, it was kind of like, okay, talk to so-and-so. They'll teach you about X, you know, or, you know, uh, meet with their office. We're actually working on this. Or you have a legislative director saying, like, this is how we do it. None of that. And so uh, what I thought was, okay, um, let me take the pieces to build up that infrastructure. And, and when I walked out that hallway the first day, I was, uh, I was wondering. I, I got a little discouraged because I was like, how am I going to do this? When I walked down that hall, I literally saw everyone I worked with over the last 10 years. You know, OMB director was uh, my policy director. You know, Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff. I worked with him with like 10 different offices. Um, not 10, I'm just exaggerating, but like a lot of different offices. You know, uh, everybody from like Mark Short, uh, who was my staff director uh, when I worked at conference and I worked with them in the, um, for AFP, Americans for Prosperity, and worked with um, um, uh, other individuals like Darius Meeks, African-American guy who was a policy director for Vice President Pence. Just everyone that I had come in contact with was there. And I was like, wow, this is literally all God. I didn't even see this around the corner. And so I got to work. The first thing, working on the HBCU initiative. You know, the president committed to making HBCUs a priority again. What you don't know is that I have about 20 HBCUs that were about to fail. We have one HBCU in our state that's dealing with issues. Have two that's dealing with issues, but one that's really dealing with issues. Yeah, historically black colleges and universities, yes. You know, and so having infrastructure around these institutions is extremely important because it goes back to the human capital piece. And so we wrote, a, we wrote an executive order within 30 days of being in the White House. No one's ever done that. Right, 30 days we write the executive order. Um, most people only remember uh, one part of all the presidents coming into the White House, which I'm not gonna explain, but it was historic because seven of these presidents had never been in the Oval Office before. And we invited them there to, to talk about a commitment. And we've cashed in on that commitment. Right now, we've um, increased funding HBCUs, um, a 20-year high, um, over 14%. $100 million of, of investment. This week, we just passed permanent funding for HBCUs and minority-serving institutions. 
key word with that is permanent. Yeah. 255 million permanent each year. But we're not stopping there because the reality is um, in order to make things sustainable in the 21st century economy, we need partnerships with private sector communities, um, people who invest in industries of the future. You know, we, we know that uh, AI and robotics, um, a number of different things are right out there on the rise. And so having these institutions help supply that pipeline is critical. So right now I'm working with OMB to invest R&D dollars into these schools. R&D dollars you know, is like a hundred billion dollars worth of R&D dollars that go to our uh, best colleges. And it's usually colleges that are on the coast, not the Midwest, but on the coast. Doesn't really reach the south or the Midwest. You know, we want to do something to change that, you know, as well as our community colleges, because you have colleges that are right here. Yeah, Tri-C, that's right here. They needed to be connected in. And so we're building these whole eco, you're going to hear me use the word ecosystem a hundred times. We're going to build all these different ecosystems around these institutions to create that pipeline of opportunity. And that's just one, that's one ecosystem. Another ecosystem that I quickly got to work on um, directly after doing the HBCU initiative was focused on homecomers. And I've termed it homecomers because these people are people. And these are the individuals who were locked up in our criminal justice system, who have been warehoused in our criminal justice system. We have to do something about that and change that culture. And with your help, we're gonna make it happen. So we wrote an executive order that created the White House Federal Interagency Crime Prevention and Reentry Council that the president signed. Um, what that ushered in was taking all the federal resources from HUD, from the Department of Labor, from HHS, and combining those resources to give to communities um, that are distressed, that are likely to be in that pipeline to go to prison, resources so they don't end up in prison in the first place. Then on the back end, individuals that are coming home from that system, giving them the resources that they need once they come home. But we went a step further. That just kicked things off. Um, from doing that executive order, I started building a relationship with Jared Kushner, who's senior advisor um, to the president, and also his son-in-law. And uh, the two of us went out on a mission. You know, No one ever thought that criminal justice reform could get passed. And I'm gonna tell you, the president's leadership on criminal justice reform is real. And I'm going to tell you why it was real. Because without President Trump, we wouldn't have got law enforcement to support it, and we wouldn't have got Republicans to support it. And so, so that's now a nonpartisan issue that's focused on outcomes. And what the criminal justice reform did, it was a first step. That's what it was called, the First Step Act. We looked at mandatory minimums, and we got rid of them. So for a third strike, you're no longer locked up in prison for life. For a second strike, you know, we're not giving you 20 years, we're giving you 15. For individuals that were locked up from the, uh, the experience I had growing up from crack cocaine to powder cocaine, those individuals had sentences that were 100 to 1 from crack to powder. 10 years ago, um, Senator Sessions and President Obama changed that law from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. But they never retroactively applied it to the people who are already in. So those people still serving those sentences. 
Under the first step back, we let them go. And now, now they're coming home. Over 3,000 people, 90% of them African-American. So think about it. You know, this is, this is real. This is real people that we're talking about. How could 90%, that's, we're a minority in this community, right? So that legislation was about fairness. It was about opportunity. But the biggest reform was reforming the actual prison system itself. So in the prison system, we take a one-size-fits-all approach towards reforming people. Like, regardless of what you've done, we're just going to warehouse you until you get out. And as a result of it, many people that leave prison go right back, right? They, call, they have a fancy word for that. That's called recidivism, right? So we have some of the highest recidivism rates, um, especially in the state prisons. It's like 70%. 70% of the people who come home go on right back. So we know where the uh, cr crime is coming from. Really, it's coming from people coming home. If we curve that number, we have left cr less crime. Therefore, we have safer communities. And so that's the big part of the First Step Act, reforming the culture of the prison system so that when a person gets in on day one, we're looking at their um, risk of recidivizing. They're either going to be high, medium, um, low, or minimum, right? Individuals that are um, high can earn time credits to come home early or good time credits to come home early if they participate in evidence-based recidivism reduction programming. So that's educational programming. That's family reunification programming. That's programming for mental health, programming for uh, things like drug abuse, all the above approach to look at every person as an individual with their socioeconomic background. You know, how did they end up in the system? Not only that, incentives like giving them a bank account to get started um, is extremely important. But it's only a first step because at the end of the day, the federal prison is 180,000 people. There's millions of people in the state prison. And the last time that we did criminal justice reform, which was probably 30 years ago, uh, we locked a lot of people up, right? So what we're hoping is the opposite happens with the First Step Act. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in Ohio. You just saw what uh, Governor uh, DeWine just did with pardons, forgiving people um, after 10 years of having a felony. Because again, these are people. These are people with families. You know? And so we have to encourage them um, and create an ecosystem so that they can be successful you know, and help raise those families. And we're going to do that together. The last piece that I'll focus on, which brings us all together, uh, when I used to work on the Hill, I worked for a senator, uh, Senator Tim Scott. I have my good friend Shay Hawkins here, who is a Clevelander who also worked for Senator Tim Scott. Um, and me and him worked really closely on this. When I left um, the House of Representatives, um, and by the way, you know, after I joined Putnam's office, you know, Vice, Vice President Pence became conference chair, and that's where I got all of my policy experience. But right after then, I like became a policy expert, and I went to the conservative caucus, which is called the Republican Study Committee. And when I got there, I was like, well, what are Republicans doing for poverty? And I'm not just talking about welfare reform, like real stuff, like opportunity. So we started this thing called the um, Anti-Poverty Caucus. And I met then Congressman Scott, who was the chair of it. And then when he be was appointed uh, senator, he was like, Jerron, I want you to come over to the Senate with me, become my economic advisor, and work on this opportunity agenda. And so. 
when Senator became Senator, I went over there and then we got to work. And out of that, we came up with the concept of Opportunity Zones. Just the concept, you know. This guy Shay here designed the details, so let's, let's give him a round of applause for his leadership on this. But it's, again, crazy how God works, right? So I left Senator Scott's office, spent a heartbeat working for the Financial Services Committee um, before working for Americans for Prosperity. Um, when I worked for Americans for Prosperity, I became their key advocate on criminal justice reform. Had never done criminal justice reform policy. Um, only at the uh, UCC Church, uh, Mount Zion, worked on uh, their program, which helps homecomers get jobs, you know, on the job partnership program. So I just always had a heart for it. Not only that, because I have friends that have been involved in the system, you know, and I wanted to make sure that they have the infrastructure around them. And so after doing the advocacy work there, I ended up in the White House being recruited. And lo and behold, this guy comes out with this great legislation called Opportunity Zones, which I was totally into. Um, and I partnered with the Economic Innovation Group. And the reason why that's important is because as soon as I got into the White House, it was my one goal that if we were going to do tax reform, we had to do something that was going to bring capital and opportunity into our most distressed communities. And so we're... And so the Investing in Opportunity Act became a part of tax reform. Um, and so that's what created Opportunity Zones. And that's really where the real work begins because, man, you could, you could ask Shay, we was on phone calls day in, day out, trying to educate the public on opportunities, or educate the governors, because first we had to designate the zones. Well, not us, the governors, right? But we had to educate localities, like talk to your governor so you can get it. Very hard. And as a result of it, not all communities that I wish should have been designated opportunity zones, like the neighborhood I grew up in, didn't become one, right? Or East Cleveland. How does East Cleveland not become an opportunity zone? That's why local leadership is so important, all right? Um, and I'm not taking shots at anyone, because this is not about Republican or Democrat. This is about right. All right? And doing what's right, we're going to have to have an all-above approach and uh, a way of kind of, of making this nonpartisan is for us all to unite to get it done. And so that's what I'm doing now. I'm going across the country. I'm in Detroit next week. I was in Miami last week. I've been in Birmingham. been to Pennsylvania. You know, I've, I've been to Cleveland twice. But it's, it's going to take a lot more than that. I need local leadership. We need local strategies. Because Opportunity Zones, what it does is it allows for um, private sector capital in the form of capital gains to be deferred um, if a person invests those capital gains into a business or asset that's in these designated co communities. Um, it's done through this vehicle called a Qualified Opportunity Fund, or QAF. Um, and there's no maximums or minimums, but it's $100 billion of capital out there. $100 billion with a B. The reason why we need local leadership is because every community is competing for that capital. And local leaders help localities be able to compete because you all know your assets. What I mean by assets, 
You know what buildings need to be revitalized? You know what communities need? Is it workforce training? Is it jobs? Is it entrepreneurship? Is it safer communities? All local decision making. And so our tool around the country is to inform people of those local decisions and create a partnership. And so that's how I want to end this, is figuring out how we can partner together. I spent the whole morning um, with local leaders, going to spend the whole evening with local leaders. Got the governor committed to helping. We need to have a united public sector strategy. We need to have a united private sector strategy. So that's not just businesses. It's businesses, it's corporations, it's nonprofits, it's churches. The federal government spends hundreds of billions of dollars a year every year. Have for like the last 40 or 50 years. Yet my dad neighborhood, the Huff neighborhood has looked the same. And now that it is revitalizing, some of the people my dad grew up with are not a part of that revitalization. Right? So Opportunity Zones was created to fight against that, to empower local communities. And, and I'm the guy. You can ask me all the questions about it, um, of course, when we do questions and answers, because you know, I'm the guy who can, can answer that, because there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of misinformation. But I'm here to tell you that it's real. It's intentional. And that's when it starts. People being very intentional about good work, about taking economics, and creating a social impact so it's mutually beneficial. So help me. Help me create this ecosystem. Help me help our homecomers. Help me empower communities to get access to opportunity. Let's create those ladders all across Cleveland. Let's create those ladders all across Ohio. Let's create those ladders all across this country. Because we are the change that we've been waiting for. Each and every one of us has a role to play. So I look forward to partnering with you, um, creating that ecosystem. Not only so some people can make money, because I think people can make money and do good at the same time. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, and I look forward to taking some questions. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with J. Ron Smith, Deputy Assistant to the President for the Office of American Innovation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. May we have the first question, please? I enjoyed your speech, and I'm just curious. I'll give you the open-end question okay. since you sort of asked for it. What is, what are, some of that misinformation that's out there? So one. You know, the, the first question that you always get is uh, gentrification and displacement. You know, that this Opportunity Zones was created to displace people. Um, and this, this is really the opposite. The mission is the complete opposite. Um, this is an incentive that really came off the backs of what we saw um, a lot of people do. Um, you had Enterprise Zones. You had Obama's or Promise Zones. If you talk to some of um, these leaders, they say only thing that was really missing was a true economic development incentive that brought capital right now. But cap capital is only sustainable if it makes economic sense, you know? So if it, if it doesn't pencil out, 
if, it does, if it's not profitable, you know, it, it, it won't survive. And so how do we do something that's profitable but also creates a social impact? So we look at uh, opportunity zones as the hub of the wheel, like the, the center. And we've built out around it infrastructure. We created the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. It takes 17 different agencies throughout the federal government and dedicates entrepreneurship funding, economic development funding, uh, um, safe communities funding, and workforce development and education funding, and focuses it in those zones. Because we realize some of the community development aspects aren't always economic. But imagine a world if the state did the same thing and the localities did the same thing. Think of how many people we can help lift up. And we can make sure that ladder is going all the way down to the people. And so when you think about things like affordable housing, um, workforce housing, all the grants that you get from HUD are focused into opportunity zones to give that back to the locality. You know, if you think about um, brownfield remediation dollars or things like uh, safe drinking water, all of that has been given back to the locality and said you can use as an opportunity zone for a social impact. Or all of our reentry training dollars from the Department of Labor or mentoring dollars from the Department of Justice all goes into opportunity zones. But what we need is local leadership to say, okay, this is how we're going to make that connection, right? To help touch people. Because for me, I mean, that's why I'm still here. I was like, Jerron, you're going to do one year and be out. <laughs> the guy was like, no, you got you to see all this through until it touches people. And so that's where I need help. Um, and that's some of the misunderstanding, the gentrification piece, the displacement piece, which, which is not the case. But it will be the case if you don't have a strategy. You know why? Because those things are already happening. <laughs> These things existed long ago. I remember my dad telling me that this was happening 20 years ago. Right? And now the community that my grandmother grew up in, uh, the Operation Corridor, no one lives over there anymore. And it, it, it hurts me because that was like, that was my childhood. <laughs> so, hope that answers your question. Uh, two things, I'm going to intertwine it together. My name is Brenda Bickerstaff. I have a private investigation business. You talk about criminal justice reform. One, my brother was killed by police. Two, with the criminal justice reform, I investigate a lot of cases where people are wrongfully charged and convicted. And I deal with this every day. Two cases come to my mind. The first case was the state of Ohio versus Orlando Wesley, who sat over in juvenile for 15 months. And he was not the person that was the perpetrator of the robbery. When I did the investigation, it was learned that the prosecutor withheld that information and knew all along. When I went to interview the mail lady, she said, I told them that 15 months ago that that was not your client. The second gentleman, state of Ohio versus um, um, Clark Bell, Mr. Bell, again, another situation where they felt because he had a record, he had did 10 years for a federal case. He was trying to get his life together. They had put him, they involved him in a case that he was not involved in and he wasn't even there. I interviewed five witnesses who said, we told the police he wasn't there. Second question is, the problem that we're having here in Cleveland, the reform that we need is the police reform, accountability and consequences. We're spending too much money on lawsuits. 20 and 30 million dollars of lawsuits, that money is a, is a deficit to our community. Right around the 105 area, half of the houses are abandoned. People are leaving. Older people cannot afford to keep their houses up. And that's my question. Okay. And I felt that question. Like, and no joking aside. 
No, 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 no joking aside. I felt that question because I've experienced that. Like when I talked about that Chrysler 300, I could tell you I probably got pulled over a hundred different times <laughs> for no reason. Um, but that's also lack of like, I always argue we need to have more um, African-Americans from the community policing their own neighborhoods, right? <laughs> community policing. But there's been such a disconnect that many of the people I grew up around don't want to be the popo. <laughs> they don't want to be the police, you know, because they're on the other side. Heck, when I lived in Shaker, no knock to Shaker, uh, we couldn't ride our bikes over there. They'd take your bike from you if you didn't have a license, but they had all the nice playgrounds. So very early on, I felt like I was being targeted, right? We signed an executive order um, at, uh, in Chicago maybe about three months ago that I wrote um, that creates um, a 21st century task force to kind of study police and community relations um, with a focus on uh, mental health. You know, I think we have to rethink how we do policing and community policing specifically. You know, I spent time in Miami. How, have how many of y'all been to Miami? All right, good. How many of y'all been to Liberty City? Yeah, yeah, Liberty City is, is real, right? But Liberty City got a black police force that walks the community weekly. They got this thing called the walk-in one-stop, where they show up with organizations from the state, federal, and local level, job providers, clinics, and they knock on doors and say, what do you need? Right? These are models that should be um, harnessed. Another great model. Uh, I spent time in the Everglades prison uh, with 100 homecomers. Um, and they have this peer mentoring program. And many of them leave, go out to the community, and then they squash gang beefs. They have a community there called the Circle of Leadership that when homecomers come home, they go to the Circle of Leadership, they get a job, and they do the walking one-stops, but they also train the police force on how to interact with the community. These are things that we should harness, and I'm, I'm happy to take a look at them, but it starts with creating relationship, and there is a lot of unfairness, and we have a lot of work to do. It won't happen overnight but we're trying to kind of turn that around so that everybody feels empowered and a part of the American community. Good afternoon, Mr. Smith, and welcome home, young man. Uh, thanks so much. Good to have you. The excellent uh, executive orders that, that you have offered, the HBCU support, the uh, returning and the reentry uh, act and those things, they all have made a significant impact and we certainly appreciate that. So we thank you. My question, in the face of all the great work that you've done, President Trump's 2020 proposed budget cuts, which include the Affordable Care Act, the SNAP Act, uh, the cuts to HUD, and, and those kinds of things, and others. In the face of that, how do you suggest that the public balance what is an obvious conflict between the great work that you're doing and the proposed budget cuts that President Trump has proposed that will surely impact all of those people in poverty that you are trying to help? Oh, God bless that question. can imagine becoming an urban revitalization person and uh, looking at EDA getting zeroed out. I'm like, oh my God. So, uh, so this is Washington talk more than anything. You know, uh, people put out these budgets. You know, um, if, it's, if it's a Democrat, they do big plus ups, right? And, but you don't see any institutional change with the programs itself. If it's a, as a Republican, we do big cuts. 
But at the end of the day, appropriators still send the same amount of money. That's, that's the reality, you know? And so most of the positioning is kind of refocusing basically what the priority should be of the federal government. You know, for us, it was focused on workforce, you know, infrastructure, you know, um, things like a different type of health care, not the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, and basically, you know, Republicans follow this whole dynamic. It has to get paid for some type of ways. Um, now, the tough, the real tough question with the budget is that how do you reform our entitlement programs, which is a whole different thing because that's what really squeezes the budget. So we can't spend a, tr we need a trillion dollars on infrastructure. but We're trying to figure out how to pay for it. So it's a complicated question that amounts to that we're having a philosophical debate on how do you properly govern. And that's all that document was really about. Smaller government, some people believe in smaller government, some people be believe in bigger government. But at the end of the day, what outcomes are we producing? I'll tell you this, you know, with 10 million workforce opportunities, 7 million people, um, 7 million jobs, lowest unemployment rate ever, lowest unemployment rate for African Americans, more people not having to depend on the system is a good start to turn this around. So I tell people to focus on the outcomes because at the end of the day, talk is cheap. You know, tell me what's really happening. What can I feel? What can I touch? But thanks so much for your question. Mr. Smith, thank you for your address. Uh, you started off by talking about that it, it takes a village to raise a child. I thought we were going to get Hillary Clinton's book. <laughs> but it, it, do, it does have a serious connection to my question. I noted the other day a statistic that in the black community, over two-thirds of new births are to single parents. You talked about the homecomers, which is very, very important, but you also talked about crime prevention. And my question is, in the programs that you have direct contact with, what, if anything, can you tell us is being done to support black families, not just single mothers? Sure. Well, one thing is in empowering the black men so they have job and dignity. I, I was blessed to grow up that I was, was chiefly raised by my dad in the neighborhood, um, but most of my friends didn't have their dads. You know, and uh, my dad had to inherit a whole bunch of sleepovers. We have sleepovers. He was dad to everybody. <laughs> Mike could tell. He used to be at my house all the time. You know, crazy water gun fights. But, I mean, there, there's no simple answer to that because you mentioned African Americans, but 50% of all Americans end up in divorce. So it's, we're talking about an American issue, you know, not just a black issue. But I also think that, like, the system doesn't reward marriage either. You know, uh, if you're low income, you know, and you're a two-parent household, you lose some benefits, you know, that you need. So, so how do we deal with that? I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's a holistic approach, and not everything is the uh, decision of government. You know, some of our institutions like churches, you know, nonprofits um, have a role. That's why I talk about partnership, you know, because th that unspoken stuff um, is something for civil society. But I think you're right. Um, people talk about education, 
but they don't talk about the parents that these children go home to and who, who gives them some accountability to do their work or if they're coming to school hungry you know, and can't concentrate. You know? And so the family is a very important, important subject um, and it's going to take a longer dialogue to figure out how we can best tackle it. Um, but it's certainly something we want to examine and we start in this by empowering men in the community so that they can be providers um, for their family. Thanks for coming home to visit us and talk to us. Much appreciated, really inspiring. My question, and I love the term you use, pipelining. It's a term we use. And how are we gonna measure, because I heard you talk about the measure of unemployment, which is, that's inspiring and, and improvement, but we've got the underemployed mm -hmm. and those that have given up seeking work that are we all just talked about today. How are we gonna measure that? It's not even in the workforce. Right. And how are we going to bring that forward as it relates to inclusiveness and measure it with real measures so we know if we're making progress? Right. That's a really good question. And I, I can tell you that's part of my reason to being here because some of these communities we talk about, even with the lowest unemployment rate we have right now, if you do the unemployment rate in those communities, the real data is still like double. You know, you can have a city that has like an unemployment rate of 4%, but go to a certain neighborhood and it's like 17, <laughs> right? Um, and that's just the people that you said that aren't measured, right? And so uh, this whole data analytics is, is a new thing, you know, which brings us back to the money that we spent all over the place over the last 40 years with economic development. We've never had accountability on those dollars and what outcomes they do. So we are, we are measuring that with the White House Revitalization Council. We are working with... Um, nonprofits to measure what works, you know, and that that goes with recidivism reduction. We don't have any measurements on how do you properly reduce recidivism, and so technology is helping us have better informed decision making. But that is all new. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, but that that goes to my earlier point, connectivity, you know, because I've had I've had the blessing and curse of being able to see dual worlds, you know, where I can go into a room and there's billion dollar investors and leaders and then go down in what my dad called the hole, you know, and there's people just trying to make ends meet, you know? And I've tried to figure out for years how to create that connectivity. And so through the president's leadership, we've created infrastructure to help with that connectivity. But in order for it to happen, we need local leaders on the ground. And so, but thank you, but we're certainly studying that. Um, Courtney McLean, my question is, what is the um, Trump's administration doing as far as having a political strategy to connecting the black churches? Because what happens in the black church is on a Sunday morning, we have a spiritual mindset, but then when we step into the booth on November, we abandon that mindset. So what is the political strategy to connect the black church? Because as far as First Amendment right, um, to be able to convey your um, religious freedom and be able to convey that. Um, we're not receiving that all the way to the um, local level within the churches. So if there are a lot of black ministers out there who are Republican, they are not getting the message out. Sure. So one, um, just so you know, I'm, I'm here in my official capacity, so I don't use that P word politically. So this is really about, it's not really about party politics. 
And I think the same bodes the same uh, with, with people who are faith leaders on the Democratic side. Um, however, um, I wrote um, with the president's leadership the White House Faith and Opportunity Executive Order. And uh, the key part of that is allowing faith groups to be able to compete uh, for federal resources, but focused on outcomes. So we don't want to give faith organizations money if they're not going to actually have the deliverable of creating jobs or stopping with drug abuse or creating healthy families. And so we're measuring that. Uh, we're hoping to have a, um, a faith and revitalization um, conference uh, at the White House where we'll take faith leaders and figure out a strategy. You know, because I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers. All I have is the infrastructure, you know. Yeah, good, good. That's why I need your help. Uh, but we, I've spent time uh, with the Kojic Church, spent time with the National Baptist Convention, you know, um, as well as the AME leaders, um, as well as also the evangelicals. And so we're, we're looking at um, all types of faith leaders because they do um, things like I told you a lot about my church, the UCC church, and uh, the work that they're doing on the ground. And so we want to help um, uh, scale what works and then also allow them to compete evenly um, for social good. Thank you, Jerron. Thank you for your thank you for your words. Uh, my question relates to benefits cliffs. Um, obviously, we live in a community uh, in a times where economies are incredibly hot. Um, one of the one of the challenges we're seeing is we have more jobs in our communities than we have people looking for jobs. And at the same time, we've got this large segment of population that was working sub living wage jobs, and they cannot afford to make an extra dollar in income because they lose two dollars in benefits. And unfortunately, this issue is we. And locally, we can't do anything about this issue where our hands are tied. How do we move this conversation in a pragmatic way rapidly uh, so that as this economy heats up even more, more people can participate in this boom, booming times? Thank you. Sure. Yeah, and what you're talking about, uh, we call that the marginal tax rate. The marginal tax you have, like, that, that happens a lot. You know, I have a cousin who's a hairstylist, and uh, she's a single mother, um, three kids, and uh, people have to make money under the table. And that's what we don't want. Uh, and so, but it's, it's a huge issue on reforming our, uh, our, our, our government programs. You know, people call them welfare program systems. Um, we have to do that uh, on the federal level um, to kind of modernize uh, those different, because first of all, they're not, they're in all in silos, you know, like Medicaid's over here, housing assistance over here, SNAP benefits is over there. So they're not even like working in concert together. You know, um, we wrote an exec I wrote an executive order called the Economic Mobility EO um, that allows for people to work, you know, and puts pressure on them to work, you know, if you're um, not disabled, you know, um, and you're able-bodied, uh, you know, little things like, you know, participating in the workforce program or searching for a job, you know, or doing something part-time. Um, but, but you're right. We have to kind of rapidly make that connection. And so... If, through Ivanka Trump's leadership, we created the Council of the America Worker. You know, what I'm wondering is, can we make people a better offer, where they can go ahead and forego those leadership, the, those, those benefits, and get the $70,000 job? That goes a long way in Canton, Ohio, and I know the leadership that you're doing in Canton and what they're trying to do with the um, Hall of Fame is is crucial. Um, but we'll have to like work through that on a local level, um, and that's that's what I'm really talking about when I'm talking about connectivity. Because it's numbers and stuff are good, but if it's not touching the communities that need the jobs, then we're just talking.
Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Jaron Smith, Deputy Assistant to the President of the Office of American Innovation. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Smith, and thank you to our members, friends, and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums, you can uh, and to support the City Club, you can visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.